Good morning, church. It's great to see you. If you've got a Bible, uh, go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 6. And uh, while you turn there, I'll say a few things. And then uh, if you're a guest with us, uh, man, we're just thrilled you decided to join us this morning. Uh, we're midway through the Sermon on the Mount, and I will uh, catch you up. So yeah, hopefully, Lord willing, you won't feel lost. Um, I'll give you kind of a summary of where we've been. But we're going to keep pressing on. We took a two-week break for Easter and uh, Palm Sunday and all of those things. Had an incredible time. And uh, we're going to dive back into the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we're going to talk about that this morning. But as you turn there, uh, I want to remind you of um, one thing, and that is whether you are a member whether you're checking us out, um, we would love for you to join us for dinner tonight. Um, if you are willing and able, it is free of charge. Uh, once a month, we as a church try to get together and um, as Acts 2 says, to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, which we're doing this morning, but also to the breaking of bread and to fellowship and to prayer. And uh, whether you are a member or not, um, we would just love for you to join us at the table tonight. And uh, we'll provide you dinner and hang out together. It'd be an awesome opportunity for you to hear more about um, our church, meet some of our church family, and uh, just feel more connected uh, with your brothers and sisters that we worship with. Um, our desire, if you, you know, truth and advertising, we're about one name, we're selling one name, and that's Jesus. And we want to be a family uh, that loves each other like he has loved us. So... Um, that's tonight at six. We'd love for you to join us. Um, if you didn't sign up, that is a-okay. Um, there will be no guilt or shame. No one's checking names. We just want you to show up and we order extra food, uh, hoping that you'll come. So join us at the table. We'd love to have you at six o'clock tonight. Um, hopefully by now you're at Matthew six. Uh, we're going to look at verses 19 through 24 this morning. So, um, if you will stand with us for the reading of God's word, uh, we'll read this together, I'll pray, and then we'll jump in together. <clears throat> I'm going to read Matthew 6, 19 through 24. It says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray together. Lord, God, I ask, um, as always, every week, that we as the people of God would gather around the word of God and that we would be instructed and taught by the spirit of God um, that wrote this word, God that is in us if we're in Christ and illumines the truth to us. Um, God, I confess that I don't have the ability to change a single heart, um, to sanctify a single soul, um, but God, you can and you promise us that as we behold you in your word, that you conform us to the image of your son, that you transform us from one degree of glory to another. So God, give us humble hearts this morning um, to receive your word. Give us security and confidence in the gospel to obey your word. And uh, God, give us joy um, in you as we do it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can have a seat. Um, as we dive into this topic, uh, let me give you a few disclaimers. Uh, one, the buckets already came by, so we're not gonna pass those by again. Um, two, we, this is, there's no agenda for us to talk about you giving to our church. Uh, Jesus isn't talking about that in this passage, so I'm not gonna twist it and talk about it in that passage. And I just wanted to give you a warning too. Um, 
My goal this morning is not to guilt you or shame you for having stuff, okay? Um, But we do need to talk about our things and our possessions uh, because Jesus decided to talk about it in this um, passage this morning. So um, you can rest assured we're not going to pass the buckets a second time or anything like that. We've got no campaign we're announcing or anything. Uh, We just want to heed God's word and love it and cherish it and obey it. So um, as we think about this topic, this whole concept of treasures in heaven, I was talking to the, uh, the team this morning. We meet and pray over the services. And uh, this whole topic of laying up treasures in heaven, uh, which, you know, we all kind of have an idea of what that means. But some of us, if we're honest, we're like, I don't know exactly what that means. It reminded me of an episode of The Office. Does anybody in here watch The Office? Uh, one bold hand. There we go. Um, some of you know in the later seasons that weren't as good as the others, um, <clears throat> Idris Elba shows up and he plays Charles Minor. And uh, if you haven't watched the show, essentially John Krasinski plays Jim and he's like the golden boy of the show. Like no one hates his character. You can't hate his character. It gets a little weird at the end, but you can't hate who he is and what he does and the, you know who he is in the office. He's funny and prankster and all that stuff. Anyways, everybody in the office loves him except for the new manager, which is John, uh, Charles Minor. And, you know, he shows up the first day and uh, Jim, John Krasinski's wearing a suit because he's pranking someone and, it's, you know, they just miss each other. He doesn't get it. And, you know, there's lots of conflict. And um, at one point, Charles Minor comes to Jim and he says, hey, Jim, I want you to give me a rundown of all the customers. And Jim has no idea what a rundown is. And the whole episode is him trying to like drop hints at, you know, hey, like, can you give me a rundown? Can you give me an example of a rundown? Like, but he doesn't want to admit that he doesn't know what it means. Um, and I think a lot of us, we might be in that same boat when it comes to laying up treasures in heaven. We're like, yeah, it's a cool concept, but like, what does that mean for my life today? What does that mean when I leave here? Um, I don't necessarily understand how I'm supposed to lay up treasures in heaven. The good news is we're going to talk about it this morning as we look at it. And as we get there, let me catch you up with where we've been in the sermon, because this entire Sermon on the Mount is aimed at your heart. And uh, I mentioned this in the first service, but the beauty of this uh, this morning is all of this has to do with the motivations and the meditations of your heart. Um, so it's, this whole series has essentially felt like a really, really long heart surgery, that every week we gather We open up God's word and he attacks the motivations of our heart with his word and his truth. And, um, you know, just the light of his word gets in the wickedness of our hearts. And we have to deal with all this and reconcile all this and and deal with, you know, our hearts that are prone to wander. Um, But this is what Jesus is doing in the entire sermon. The entire sermon is directed at your heart, the whole thing. And as he's doing this, um, he has... Jesus is contrasting kind of the exterior, outward show religion of the scribes and the Pharisees with the genuine religion of his disciples that flows from a genuine heart that loves God. So he starts the sermon back in chapter five with these two different types of attitudes. You can have the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees that's arrogant, that boasts in their works, that boasts in their ability to keep the law. Or he says, my followers are humble in heart. They're poor in spirit right? They're not arrogant thinking that they've earned their righteousness, that they're spiritually bankrupt. They're poor in spirit, that they're meek, that they're humble, that they hunger and thirst for a righteousness that they can't produce on their own. So he's contrasting this one set of attitudes with gospel attitudes, that we're humble before God, that we long for his righteousness in our lives, in our families, on this earth. And then he moves from these two different attitudes to these two types of interpretations of the law. 
And Jesus moves into the external way to obey, thou shall not murder, right? You've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, and the scribes and the Pharisees have interpreted the law externally, right? As long as I haven't killed anybody, I'm good, I'm righteous. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't get it. That the gospel way, the heart level way to obey this text is to not envy, to not be bitter, to not be jealous, to not have any rivalries with people or bitterness towards people, right? There's an exterior kind of um, showy, false way, exterior way to, to not commit adultery. And Jesus says, no, that's not it. My followers, we, it's not just that we don't commit adultery on the outside. We don't commit adultery in our hearts with the way we look at people and the way we lust after people and the way we um, think about people to be used for our own advantage. So you've got these two different attitudes of the scribes and the Pharisees, these false converts, and you've got these, um, the attitude of Jesus's disciples. And then he moves into these two practices, right? One is because you're trying to earn God's righteousness. And the other one is because you know you already have God's righteousness. You've got the scribes and the Pharisees that are trying to earn God's righteousness with the things that they do. So he moves from the two attitudes to the two interpretations. And he ends that section with, you need a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. This external law keeping isn't gonna cut it. You need an inward change. You need an internal righteousness. You've gotta have something greater than what the scribes and the Pharisees have. And then he moves into these two types of religious practice. And he's contrasting the two. He says there's two ways to give, right? There's giving, put some money in the bucket so I hope that God will love me more and finally be approved of me. And then there's giving because God has been generous with his grace and I know that whether I give or not, God loves me through Christ. And because of that, because I can't earn it or I don't deserve it, I give generously because of what he's done for me, right? There's two ways to give, there's two ways to pray. One is praying in the streets so that everyone will see your prayers and approve of you and think you're righteous. And then there's a way to pray that you know that you're righteous because of what Christ has done. And because of that, you run to your father and you can be honest with him and open with him and you give him your worries and you give him your cares because you're not trying to perform. And then you're free to be honest with him. And then he says, there's two ways to fast. You can fast so that other people will see you and go, man, you're awesome. Man, you're religious. Man, you're impressive. You must love Jesus. You must love God. And then there's a way to fast that says, you know what? I know that Jesus, for, he forsook, is that the past tense of that word? Um, all of the pleasures of this earth for me. And because of that, I am happy to abstain from a meal so that I can have a more intimate relationship with him. Knowing that it doesn't win anything for me with God in his account, that my account is full because Christ's righteousness is given to me. And now I can give up a meal. Why? Because I wanna know him more intimately. I wanna enjoy him more. I wanna depend on him more than I depend on food and all of those things. But he starts with the two attitudes, comparing those, contrasting those, goes into the two interpretations of the law. Then he moves into this, there's two types, two ways to practice religion. And now Jesus is going to get into, um, there's, he ends that section with, there's actually two rewards, the praises of men or more intimacy with Christ, more joy in Christ. And now today he's going to say, there's two treasures that you can choose from. And the way you'll choose those is you have to have one of two sets of eyes and then um, ultimately you'll serve one of two masters. And this is what Jesus is getting at. And we don't do sermon titles. Uh, I think we should just title the sermon Matthew 6, 19 through 24. But if I gave you a sermon title, it would be two treasures, two eyes, and two masters. 
because this is essentially what Jesus is getting at. And then if you want a preview of where we're headed, in chapter seven, what does Jesus do? More of the same. He says there's two roads that you can walk down, one that leads to life and one that leads to destruction. He says there's two types of trees. You'll be one of the two, one that produces good fruit or one that produces poisonous fruit. And then he says there's two houses that you're building. You're building one of two, a house or a life that's built on solid foundation or a house or a life that's built on shaking sand. All of us are doing one of two things. And here's the kicker about all of this. It's at the heart level. You can't see it externally. You can't see the difference. There could be two people in this room. Both are raising their hands. Both drop some money in the bucket. Both are taking notes. Both read their Bible during the week. And one of them is doing that because they just hope that they'll be good enough for God to finally love them. The other one is doing it because they know that they don't deserve God's love and he has fully given him all of their love in Christ. Jesus is getting at the motivations of our heart in this entire sermon, which is why it feels like heart surgery every single week. So the good news about this is we can study this together, we can unpack it together, and then we all have to go somewhere and be alone with God and sort these things out in our hearts. So we're not gonna judge you based on your behavior. There's no guilt based on your behavior because I can't see the motivations of your heart. That's between you and the Lord, which frees me up to be as honest as I possibly can be with this text because ultimately Jesus is getting at our hearts and we have to sort these things out with him in our hearts. So do you see what he's doing during the sermon though? He is contrasting this exterior religion with a genuine relationship of Jesus Christ that is not working to try to win his approval, but living from the fact that you already have it. We're not trying to be good enough so that God will love us. We, are, we live and we give and we serve and we pray because he loves us. And it all has to do with the motivation of your heart. So let's look at these two treasures, these two eyes, and these two masters. He says this in verse 19. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now notice what he does not say. Jesus does not say, don't have possessions, right? It's not a sin to have nice things. He doesn't say it's, you know, don't work, don't make money, don't buy things, don't store up things. He's not saying that. He's not telling you it's wrong to save money for your children or any of those things. I'll show you what he's saying in just a second, but I wanna be incredibly clear. clear. There is no guilt or shame for you if you walked in here with nice stuff. He's gonna get to our heart's affections towards those things in just a minute, but he doesn't say it's a sin to have things or to have possessions. In fact, Proverbs, and if you, commercial for Proverbs for a second, if you don't read the book of Proverbs, I would highly encourage you to read the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is like your friend, um, who loves you enough to tell you when you like, you know, show up to a place and they're like, hey, you need to go home and change because that's just not working today, right? That's Proverbs. Proverbs doesn't tell you how things are. Proverbs, or Proverbs doesn't tell us how things should be. It just straight up tells us how they are. It's the friend that loves you enough to tell you there's something in your teeth or you've got something in your nose, a bat in the cave, right? Whatever the phrase is, like all those things. Proverbs doesn't tell us how things should be. It just straight up tells us how it is. For example, in Proverbs, there's a proverb that says um, that if you have a lot of wealth, with, with much wealth comes many friends. And 
loneliness comes with poverty. And it, is that how things should be? No. But what is Solomon telling his son as he's writing this? He's saying, hey, if you're broke, you're not gonna have a lot of people calling you, wanting to hang out, right? It's just, it's reality. And he says, hey, if you have a lot of money, you'll have a lot of people calling, but it doesn't mean that their motives are pure or genuine or that they actually care about you. He just says, this is how it is. And there's wisdom in knowing how the world works. And there's lots of, there's so many Proverbs about money. In fact, Proverbs 1 opens with um, this group of friends, essentially this group of people doing evil out of this desire for money. That they come in and ravage this group of folks. Why? Because they want plunder, they want money. That money can corrupt our hearts. Money's dangerous. So commercial for Proverbs is over. But in Proverbs chapter six, um, Solomon praises the ant for working, for storing up grain, for storing up food for the winter. So he's not, Jesus here isn't saying, you know, don't have any possessions. You just need to live a life with no possessions and sell all your stuff and be a vagabond and all those. He's not saying that. You know, Proverbs rewards us. In fact, um, Paul takes it a step further in 1 Timothy chapter five. He even says that if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5 verse eight, if you wanna make the note and check me on it later. But Paul says that you, we're worse than unbelievers if we don't provide for our families. Scripture calls us to enjoy God's gifts, not to despise them, not to hate them. But Jesus is about to get at our heart's motives for those things. And here's the key. He says, it's not a sin to have those things. It's a sin to treasure those things. It's a sin to worship those things. This is what Jesus is getting at. That you and I, we have a tendency and money is this way, possessions is this way. Um, the slope is so slippery and the line is so blurry that all of us have a tendency to worship things, to worship money, to worship possessions, to worship the bank account. And what do you mean worship? I mean like to find our security in those things, to find our significance in those things, to find your satisfaction in money and possessions and wealth and all of those things. And boy, let me just lead the way. I am guilty of this. How often do I feel insecure? And what's the first thing I do? I pull up our bank account, our mobile banking app to try to feel more secure about myself. What am I worshiping in that moment? What am I showing the God of all of the universe who loves me and promises me that he feeds the birds and if he feeds the birds, he cares much more about me than he does the birds and he'll take care of me and feed me. When I feel insecure in life and I pull up my bank statement, what am I worshiping in that moment? There's so many times where I'll forget the gospel and I'll show up to work and I don't feel significant. I've forgotten that my significance comes from Christ and I'll go and try to win significance. I'll go try to produce something, to do some good this week so I'll finally feel good about myself. And I'll worship my job. I'll worship um, having more, a better reputation or more you know, influence in the community or whatever it is. But we are all so quick. Our hearts are so prone to wander and to slide down the slope and to worship and draw our significance and our security and our worth and our value from things, aren't we? We sure are, all of the time. And Jesus is saying, it's not a sin to have those things. Don't treasure those things. Don't trust those things. Don't put your hope in those things. Don't put your worth, don't measure your worth by your things 
or your bank account or your money or your job or your status. Don't find your significance in those things. Don't let your worship or your joy terminate in those things. And the way we see this is um, the verb in the Greek where he says store up for yourselves or don't store up. Um, it's the, the verb form of the word treasure, which is interesting. He uses the same root word twice in the sentence. I wish I put the Greek phrase up there on the screen, but I didn't wanna be nerdy and all that stuff. But Jesus uses, it's the, um, the Greek word um, thesaurus. It's actually very similar to our English word thesaurus. But he, he uses the verb form and he uses the noun form. And to help explain this, um, since it's been a while since we went to you know, 11th grade English class, um, think about the word like battle. Battle can be a noun where I went to the battle, right? We're gonna go to the battle. It's, it's a person, place, or a thing, but it can also be a verb, right? That the Grizzlies last night battled against the Timberwolves and fell short. And a lot of us battled against our bedtime and stayed up too late and watched the game, right? Um, it can be a noun or a verb. So what, what Jesus, interestingly, as Matthew records this, what he uses is the same root word. So what he's saying here is don't treasure earthly treasures. Don't treasure the things on this earth. Don't love, don't worship, don't treasure the possessions and the, and the things of this earth. Don't treasure earthly treasures. This is what he's getting at here. He uses the verb form and the noun form. Don't put our security in those things. Don't find your worth in those things. Don't measure your life by those things. Don't dedicate your life to run after those things of this earth thinking that they will satisfy your soul. And boy, do we try to do that, right? If I could just get this job, then I'll finally be satisfied. If I can just have this child, then I'll, I'll never want anything again. My joy will be full. If I can just get married, then, then life will suddenly fall into place and I'll, I'll, my joy will be complete. If I can just get this next percentage point on my bonus, if I could just reach this certain income level, if I could just have one more jet ski or whatever it is, right? Then finally, I'll be happy. And Jesus is saying, don't put your treasure in earthly treasures. Don't worship those things. Don't try to draw your self-worth or your significance from those things. And he's going to give us some reasons why. First one, he tells us it's really logical and practical. All of those things fade. Moth and rust destroy those things. And this was you know, especially true in the first century. They didn't have technology. They didn't have all these things to protect our stuff where moth and animals and you know, rodents, you name it, rust, corrosion. They didn't have sprays you could spray on your stuff and, you know, bags you could put your suit in to protect it from moths and all those. They didn't have any of those things. Like nothing was safe in the first century. People could break in at any moment and steal your stuff. And what's so fascinating about our world today is we have all those things, right? We have mousetraps. We have, you know, stuff you can put your clothes in. We have burglar alarms and insurance and all those things. And we still haven't managed to keep our stuff from decaying and breaking and rotting and going away, have we? It all erodes. It all depreciates. It all doesn't last. It's not durable. It can be taken from us. With all the technology we have, it can still be taken from us in a moment. That's what's crazy. Um, I was nine years old in 2001 when uh, Enron went belly up. 
Some of you remember all of that happening. And uh, I remember my parents, as things would come on the news, took the opportunity to sit down with me and my older brother and talk to us and tell us about um, to not put our hope and not put our, not dedicate our life to pursuing wealth. Um, there were grown men um, who found their identity in their job, in their bank account, in the statement. And when everything just suddenly turned on its head, they didn't just lose some money, they lost their reason and were committing suicide and jumping out of buildings, and jumping out of offices and all of those things. Why? Because they anchored their existence the weight of their desires, their significance, their self-worth, their value, they treasured an earthly treasure and it was here one moment and it was gone the next. Same thing in 2008 when the housing market just crashed. I have my best friend, knows some people who invested in some property right before the market crashed. My best friend did that himself and luckily he didn't go down kind of the dark road but he, my one of my friends knows some people that took their own life because the market crashed. Why? They didn't just lose some money. They lost their reason. They lost their joy. They lost their purpose because they put their treasure, the weight of their existence on earthly things. And it was gone in an instant. And here's what's crazy is even if, you've got nice enough stuff and you've got nice enough precautions and systems and you've just figured out the perfect routine where you can keep all of your stuff in you know, pretty decently used to mint condition, even if you can do that, which you can't. Uh, it's funny, I was thought about, I was gonna be able to tell you, it's like a used car. When you drive it off the lot, it suddenly depreciates, but I don't even know if that's true anymore with our current uh, economy. Uh, it might be worth more. Um, which is wild. But all of those things depreciate instantly. And even if you've got the routine down where you're good enough, where you can maintain all of your stuff, no one has yet to figure out how to take it with them when they die. Nobody has. It all goes in the box, doesn't it? Nobody has figured out how to do that. Nobody has. And let me just say this. Um, there is no U-Haul behind the hearse. You can dedicate your life to, to storing up and treasuring earthly treasures. And it is a terrifying thing to spend your life climbing the ladder and realizing at the end of your life that the ladder was leaned up against the wrong thing. We have to learn from the wisdom of those that have gone before us and told us these things. And the good thing about it is scripture tells us these things. Job says, naked I came, naked from my mother's womb I came, and naked I shall return, right? Solomon, outside of Jesus, the wisest man to ever live, the richest man to ever live, by far, starts his book of Ecclesiastes with vanity, vanity. All is vanity. What does a man gain from all of his toil, Right? that earthly possessions cannot satisfy the human heart. They can't. They will not and they cannot. And here's the thing. One of two outcomes is gonna happen. If we, if me, if you, if, if we dedicate our lives to just trying to accumulate more stuff, to treasuring earthly things, one of two things will happen. One 
is you won't get that thing that you feel like will satisfy your soul. Whatever it is, maybe you don't get it. Then suddenly, you don't just lose that thing, you lose your reason, your worth, you lose your value, you lose your significance, you lose it all. The other thing, the other alternative, is in God's kindness, he lets us get that thing and attain that thing just so that we can realize that it will never satisfy our soul, right? All of us have been there where we thought, if I could just get this thing, if I could just have this job, if we could just get this house, if we could just have this child, if we could just start this relationship, then I will be satisfied, and it never works. It never satisfies. There is not a thing on this earth that can satisfy the human heart. And it is a terrifying feeling to get everything you thought you've ever wanted and realize that you're still empty, isn't it? It really is. There is nothing that can satisfy our hearts. Augustine says it this way. He says, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee that we can spend all of our lives trying to fill this restless void in our hearts and no amount of stuff, no amount of things will ever satisfy our soul. Why? Because the problem's not out there. The problem's in here, isn't it? Doesn't matter how much possessions you have, how much stuff you have, how many jet skis you have, you're still you, right? You might be you in a Ferrari, but that thing on the outside doesn't fix what's broken on the inside, does it? It cannot satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts and of our souls. And I see this with students all the time. And students, I'm not picking on you. I just did student ministry for seven years. So I got a lot of time with you. And I see this all the time. When students would come into my office and they'd talk to me and they put the weight of their existence on being an athlete or on being popular or on their grades, And are any of those things wrong? No, but they can't hold the weight of your desires. And if your self-worth and your identity and your significance and your security comes from being an athlete, then if you have a good game, you're on top of the world. But if you have a bad game, you feel worthless. It's not just the stats were bad last week. It's I'm a terrible human being. It's I don't have any significance. I don't have any worth. And when I could try to explain and get students to see that when you no longer put the weight of your existence on a job or on money or on your income, when you don't put the weight of your existence on that thing, you're actually finally free to enjoy that thing for what it is. When how you play this week on the baseball field doesn't determine who you are as a human being, then you're finally free to give it all you got because you finally got no pressure. It doesn't determine my worth or my significance or my value, so now I can enjoy it for what it really is. And it's true in our relationships. It's true with us. When you aren't looking for a thing, your marriage, your children, your job, to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul, you're finally free to enjoy them for what they are, which is good gifts from the Lord, to be used for his glory and for others' good and for the good of your family. But let me tell you, you want to crush something, crush your spouse, crush your children, Put the weight of your significance and the weight of your desires on that thing and you'll crush it with the weight of your expectations because no spouse, no job, no amount of money can ever satisfy what's missing in here. And you'll crush whatever that thing is with the weight of your expectations. We will. 
And we do it all the time. It's not a sin to have those things. Jesus is saying, don't worship them. Don't treasure the things of this earth. They will not satisfy the human soul. They can't. Don't do it. So that's the negative. And then he gives us the positive. Same command, but he gives us the negative side and the positive side in verse 20. But lay up for yourselves, same word, treasure there. Treasure for yourselves, treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus says, if you wanna treasure something, treasure eternal things, treasure heavenly treasures, live for heavenly treasure, work for heavenly treasure, leverage your life to attain heavenly treasure, use the earthly treasures that God has given you to attain heavenly treasure, to store up heavenly treasure. Use those things. It's like um, insider trading, uh, curveball, right? In, what's insider trading? It's when you know, um, based on the, how your company's going to behave or how the market's gonna, gonna change, that you make investments based on insider information that you know your company's gonna do in the market. Um, illegal in business, right? Jesus is saying it is completely legal in the kingdom of God to practice insider trading. How so? You and I, we know how the story ends. We don't take this stuff with us. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that Jesus has promised us that all authority has been given to him and he'll be with us and he is going to ensure and oversee that the gospel of Jesus Christ goes to every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people group for the glory of God. And then when that happens, Jesus Christ himself, as he is sanctifying us and preparing a bride for himself, he's going to come down for his bride. He's going to take his bride, us if we're in Christ, to a place that he's prepared for us and we will dwell with him forever and everything about this earth will be burnt up and we'll experience union with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. If we know that's what's going to happen, practice insider trading. In the kingdom, don't make investments based on things that aren't gonna last. They're not gonna last in your lifetime. You can't take them with you. And they're not gonna last in eternity. And Jesus is saying, don't treasure those things. Treasure the things that are eternal. Treasure the things that will last. How do you do that? Use the earthly to impact the eternal. Use your job, use your earthly treasures, use your resources, use your gifts that God has given you. First Peter 4, each one of us should use the gifts of God's given us as ministers of God's grace for the good of others. That you and I would use what God has given us to impact the kingdom for the glory of God and for the good of the people around us. Lay up for ourselves eternal treasures. Jesus gives us a glimpse of this in Matthew 25. How do we love him and clothe him and provide for him and give him food and give him water and visit him in his distress. He says, when you've done it unto the least of these, how do you store up heavenly treasure? You leverage your earthly gifts and your resources and your money and your wealth and all of those things to care for the least of these, to the glory of God and to the good of others. That's how you do it. You leverage the earthly for the eternal. You don't treasure the things of this earth, but you view them as dispensable for the kingdom of God and for the good of the people around you, for your family, for your children, for this community. You use these things that will all be gone one day to impact eternity. 
You treasure those things and you use those things to work for the heavenly treasure. Do you see the difference? Um, James says in James 1, that religion that is acceptable from God our Father is that we look out for the widows and the orphans among us. That we use our resources, you use your wealth, you use your gifts to impact them. And I just wanna be clear, he's not talking about that you have to do this to be saved, all right? Ephesians 2, salvation is a free gift of God's grace. You can't work for it, you can't earn it, none of us can boast about it. It is a free gift of God. But we're talking about these heavenly treasures, these heavenly realities. Um, he even, um, Peter, in his epistle, 1 Peter, he talks about um, salvation and he shows us just the beauty of this inheritance and he says that it's imperishable, it's un undefiled, it's unfading. And here's what's crazy about the gospel. He says it's, it's being kept in heaven for us by God and God is guarding us for it right? He began the work in us. He's going to see it to completion. He's preparing this inheritance for us. He's keeping it for us, and he's keeping us for it. We don't work for it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. But just in that reality, just like our salvation, these, this eternal reward is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. So is this heavenly treasure that we work for, that we labor for, that we strive for, that other people would come to experience the gospel and hear the good news, for the glory of God and for the good of others. And here's why Jesus tells us to do this in verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's the real reason why you and I have to store up and treasure heavenly treasures. Because the point of the entire sermon, Jesus is after your heart. And he says, Wherever, whatever you treasure, your heart's going to follow whether that means up to heaven or whether that means down to earth. Your heart will follow what you treasure. If you think about it, we say this pretty frequently here, what you think about will be what you care about. And what you care about will be what you chase, what you move towards with your life. And what you convince yourself, what you believe will satisfy your soul, will make you happy. Whatever you load into your mind that you think will complete your joy, you will stir up affections in your heart for that thing. And then you will run after that thing with your hands, with your life, head, heart, and hands. That all of us, whatever we have convinced ourselves will satisfy our souls. We will love that thing. We will cherish that thing. We will want that thing. And then we'll run after it with our lives. And the danger about this, as Jesus will tell us in just a minute, if we are worshiping and longing for this earthly treasure to satisfy us, then anybody around us that has the potential to get that thing is now a threat to us and an enemy of us. And he'll tell us that in just a minute. What you believe matters most in your head will stir up affections for those things in your heart and you will pursue those things with your hands. And Jesus gives us a beautiful illustration in verse 22. He says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now, what does a lamp do? It brings light, right? It helps us define and see reality. All of us in our pride, or maybe in our laziness, at some point in our lives at night, have said, yeah, I don't need to turn the lights on, right? And we ventured into uncharted territory and stepped on a Lego or stubbed our toe, right? Taught our children some four-letter words while they're sleeping. Um, all of those things, haven't we? What does the light do? It helps us see reality and define reality, but then it also gives us direction on where to move and where to go, how to move forward. 
Jesus actually says in Psalm 119 that this is what his word does. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. This is why we read God's word, not so that he'll be happy with you. He already is in Christ. So that you and I will see reality accurately. That we'll be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That he'll conform us to the image of his son. That we'll see reality and we'll see this life for what it is. We'll have an accurate view of reality and we'll have an accurate direction of how to move through it. You see the difference? And Jesus is saying that your eye, your perspective, if it's healthy, if it's good, your body will be full of light. And he's talking about perspective here. If you have a good eye, if you see that nothing on this earth will ever satisfy your soul and that only Christ and knowing him more and making him known to the world will satisfy your soul and will last for eternity. If you see that, if you have a good eye, then your life, your body will be full of light. If you believe that in your head, you'll long for that in your heart and your body, you'll move for that with your hands and you'll pursue those things and you will live a life that shines his light like lights in the world. And people will see your life and see your good deeds and they'll give glory to your God in heaven. Chapter five, verse 16. But he says, if your eye is bad, if you don't see this, if you view earthly possessions, I just need to get the next thing. I just need to reach the next income level. I just need to get the nicest, newest thing. And then I'll be happy. If you live your life according to the values of the world and I just pursue my own truth and I do my own thing and I do what I feel and I am what I feel and all of those kind of things. If you have a bad eye and don't see that none of those things will last and that the only thing will last is what you have done in response to what Christ has done in your life for the glory of God and for the good of others. If you don't see that and you have a bad eye, then man, you'll pursue all sorts of darkness with your life. And I don't mean like we'll go out and start killing people, but what will you do? If you think that this next thing, oh man, I see this all the time. I did a year of ministry with our young adults and I was so guilty of this along with them, but I saw this all the time. If I'm convinced myself that getting married will fulfill me and complete me, then every single person online that posts engagement photos, they're now a threat to me because they're living out my purpose. They're living out my reason and I am no longer free to celebrate them and enjoy them. In fact, I envy them and I'm bitter towards them and I just erode, right? This wickedness, this mold in me grows. It's like um, Gollum in Lord of the Rings. Like if, if I find this earthly thing that I think is my precious and I just run after it, everything in my life arose and decays in an attempt to get that thing. If I convince myself, my wife and I, if we convince ourselves that having a child is gonna complete us, then every single person in our lives and in our community that posts a pregnancy announcement online is now an enemy to us and a threat to us. And we can't celebrate them, we can't enjoy them, we can't praise God for them because they're living out the thing that we think is gonna satisfy our soul. And our body will be full of darkness. And Jesus says, you know what's greater than physical darkness? Living in spiritual darkness is so much worse. And he's getting at our perspective here. There's two treasures we can choose from and we have to have a good eye to be able to see it. Otherwise, we'll run after these things, hoping that they'll satisfy our souls, hoping that they'll fix what's broken within us and nothing on this earth can ever make us whole and can fix that. It just can't. So if you have a good eye, you'll see this, you'll run after the eternal things. If you have a bad eye, 
Your whole body will be full of darkness. And we see this. Uh, we love stories like this, actually. Um, anybody ever seen uh, Regarding Henry with Harrison Ford? Anybody seen that movie? What happens? He's this materialistic, kind of cutthroat lawyer, and then he gets shot in the head, and he's you know, been married to his job, essentially, and he's neglecting his wife and his children, and it takes him a while. But over time, what we love about that story is that that moment gives him good perspective. It gives him a good eye. And not a gospel eye, but it gives him a better eye, right? And he sees that his wife is great and precious to him, that his kids, he loves them, and he changes because of the circumstance. Wizard of Oz, same story, right? Dorothy has this near-death experience. And what does she realize through all of that? That I have everything I need right here, that there's no place like home. Um, it's a wonderful life. Anybody seen that movie? Jimmy Stewart, George Bailey? I'll last on the moon, right? You've seen that one? What happens? Clarence comes alongside of George and shows him what life would be like. He gives him perspective. He gives him a good eye. He shows him what life would be like if he never existed. And all those little things that used to annoy George, he now loves. And he's like hugging trees and kissing signs. And he's like, you know, shouting for joy because of little things. And he realizes that Mary and his kids are precious to him. And that old building alone is a good thing and a precious thing. And what happened? He got a good eye. He had good perspective. Now, do these people have gospel perspective? No. Jesus is calling us something to greater than that, greater than a near-death experience. But that you and I, we would see in light of scripture that nothing on this earth can satisfy our hearts. That we would have a good eye. And because of that, we would long for the eternal. We would long for the things that can truly satisfy. More intimacy with Christ, more joy of being used by him, more joy in making him known to our neighbors and to our coworkers and to people in our street and our cove and all of those things. We would long for those things. Why? Because we've believed, we know what's true, that those will satisfy our hearts. Knowing Christ more will satisfy our souls and we'll, we'll long for those in our hearts and we'll run after those with our hands. You see the difference? And what's so interesting about this illustration that I find funny is that it is completely possible to be physically blind and to have a good eye. You can be physically blind, according to this text, and still know that Jesus Christ is the only thing that can satisfy your soul and leverage your life to pursue the things um, that will matter when eternity comes. Same is also true. The flip side of the coin is you can have 20-20 vision and live with a bad eye and live your life chasing after the next shiny thing, thinking it will make you happy. And it won't. It will not satisfy So the natural question, to kind of round third, is I'll just run after both, right? What's wrong with that? I'll just chase after both of these things. I'll find my identity in God and in my bank account, right? I'll draw some of my significance from the gospel and I'll continue to make sure that I find some significance in my job or in my career, my money, all of those things. And if Jesus's language hasn't cleared that up for you yet, where he said, he's given you two options, stop doing this one and start doing this one. He didn't say, try both. Jesus removes all doubt in the next verse. What does he say? Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve God and money. At the end of the day, one of them will reign supreme in your heart. One of them will dictate what you believe will satisfy, what you think, what you, what you long for to satisfy your soul and what you run after with your life. And if money, if wealth, if possessions is the thing that you're drawing your significance from, you're not gonna like what Jesus has to say about your money. You're not. What does he say? That it's a tool, it's a gift from God, that it all comes from him and it's supposed to flow out of you like a river. It's not supposed to stay there and get stagnant like a pond, like this water that doesn't move. It's supposed to flow in you and flow out of you for the glory of God and for the good of the people around you. That it's something God's given you to steward for his glory and for the world's good so that they might see him and worship him and know him. If money is your God, if money's where you're drawing your significance from or a sport or whatever it is, but especially wealth and possessions, you're not gonna like what Jesus says about your possessions. And you're not gonna be willing to give those up. Why? Because you're giving up part of you. You're giving up part of your self-worth if that's where you're drawing it from. Only one of them can rule in your heart. And the word master there in the Greek is the word kurios, it's the word Lord. You can only have one Lord. Only one will be Lord. And the word serve there is actually the word doulos. It's where we get the word slave from. But you and I, we can work for two companies, we can work for two bosses, but you can only be a slave to one Lord and to one master. And you will either be a slave, you'll be a slave to whatever you think will satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. You will run after that thing with your life. And Jesus says you can't be a slave to Christ, as Paul would say in Romans, and be a slave to more possessions and more wealth at the same time. You just can't. You won't be able to, that's two different roads, and you won't be able to run after both of those things. Let me read this to you. This won't be on the screen. 1 Timothy 6, um, 6 through uh, 10, if you wanna make a note in your Bible, in your margin. Um, but just listen to this for a second. Uh, this is Paul talking to Timothy. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, these things we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. That if money is your God, Paul says the end of that road is you walking away from Christ. If you think more possessions, more money, more stuff will satisfy you, you will walk away from the faith. The good news of the gospel is you show up with empty hands. You bring nothing to the table. Tim Keller says the only way to be worthy of the gospel is to realize you're completely unworthy of it. Isaiah 55 talks about the gospel and says that you and I, the way we come and buy, the way we come and eat is we come and buy as those who are poor. We come and eat as those who have no money to purchase it. That's the paradox of the gospel is that at the heart level for you to truly receive the gospel, you have to forsake all else. I'm not putting my worth, my hope, my security in anything else, but in what Jesus Christ has done for me. That's the gospel is that you and I can participate in the kingdom of God and have all the blessings of the kingdom and we bring nothing to the table. We show up with empty hands. Luke 14, Jesus says, whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
rich young ruler, comes to Jesus. I'm ready to follow you. What does he say? Go sell all that you have. Why did he say that? Because the man's God was his stuff. Now, is it a requirement for you to sell your possessions to be a Christian? No, that would be a work, right? You don't work for salvation. It's a free gift. But is it a requirement for you to be willing to at the heart level? Yes. For God to come to you and say, all of the blessings of salvation, eternally joy, eternal peace, eternal union with Christ, and all you have to do at the heart level is forsake all else, you and I must be willing to say yes to that invitation. Otherwise, we're still holding on to something else in this earth. He's getting at the heart level. Is this a requirement physically? No. But is this the posture of our hearts? Yes. When I stand before God one day, I'm not talking about, I'm not using first person pronouns at all. I, me, my stuff, here's what I did, here's my money, here's my possessions. I'm saying, you, you sent your son, he shed his blood, you died for me, you live for me. How arrogant do we have to be to stand before God and begin to talk about us? Jesus is saying, no, 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 you still don't get it. Don't treasure anything on this earth. Treasure the things that last. So to kind of wrap us up, earthly possessions as a summary, they don't last, they can corrupt our eyes, they can, or they can corrupt our hearts, they can darken our eyes, and they have a tendency to become our master. And let me just tell you with integrity that I fail at this all the time, all the time. I, I don't know how many masters I have in the course of a day. My heart is so prone to wander. We fail at this all the time. Exactly. I'll find my identity in my stuff. I'll find my identity in my job. I'll find my significance and my worth and possessions and things in my bank account. Oftentimes when I check that, it just makes it worse. I feel less secure, right? But I'll, I'll turn to so many other lesser things. Good gifts from God make terrible gods. And boy, do I love to try to lean on those things for my own worth and my own significance. I fail at all of these things all the time. And here's the good news of the gospel. For all of the masters that I worship in the course of the day, the good news of the gospel is that God's love for me is not based on my worship of one master, but of Jesus's complete worship. Every minute of his whole existence, he was dedicated to one Lord. He was the only one who has ever completely served one master and loved God with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his mind and with all of his strength. I haven't done that completely for one minute of my life. I can't. My heart is so wicked. And the good news of the gospel is that you can have all of the blessings that Jesus Christ and his perfect devotion to God, all of the blessings that he won for you, you can have those by faith in him. For all the ways that you and I worship other masters, Jesus Christ has only worshiped one master for his entire existence. And when you put your faith in Christ, the blessings of salvation that he has won because of his devotion and his obedience is freely given to you. And the punishment for all of our waywardness and our disobedience, it was put on him at the cross. That's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus was glad to give up all of the treasures of this earth, even his own life, for all of the ways that I treasure earthly things. He was willing to step out of heaven to give up all of those things so that I could have the blessings of heaven. 
And he gave up the blessings of earth and the blessings of heaven to come down here to forsake all else, to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, to be the perfect spotless lamb who would die in my place. And we won't live for heavenly treasure if we don't remember the gospel. Last verse, Luke 12, verse 32. I want you to see what Luke says about this passage. He says this, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Stop there. Don't, don't speed into the things you're supposed to do and not do. It is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of heaven freely. And because of that, when you remember that, that in Christ you've been given the kingdom of heaven for all eternity to enjoy, then he says, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you and I, as soon as we forget that God has given us the kingdom in Christ, we'll start to build our own kingdom real quick, won't we? Kingdom of my possessions, of my job, of my money, of my stuff. And when I forget the gospel, that I've been freely given the kingdom in Christ, I won't give. I won't store up earthly tre or heavenly treasure. I'll go and try to build my own sandcastle kingdom real quick compared to the kingdom of heaven. But it is only when you and I remember the gospel that in Christ, we've been given the kingdom of heaven. And if we remember that, then we will go and we will leverage the things that God has given us for his glory and for the good of others. It only happens when we, when we remember the gospel, when we remember the extravagant love of God. So here's the application this morning. God has made you with gifts and with skills and with wisdom and with leadership. Make all the money you can, but don't trust it for a second. Don't worship it. Don't find your significance from it. Don't find your worth from it. Don't measure your life by it. Use the gifts God's given you to acquire wealth, but don't put a single ounce of your security or your hope in it because it won't. It won't come through on that promise. You can't take that check to the bank. Find your wealth, find your hope, find your love, find your significance, find your security in Christ. He's the greatest treasure. If you wanna memorize a parable this morning, Matthew 13, 44, one verse parable, the kingdom of heaven, the gospel is like a man who found a treasure in a field and in his joy, he sells all that he has to buy that field. Jesus Christ is the only treasure that can ever satisfy your soul. And at the heart level, we forsake all else and we say, I want that. And when I have that, everything else is joyfully dispensable. I'll use my gifts, I'll acquire wealth, I'll use the gifts God's given me for his glory and for the good of the people around me. Use it to know God more. Use it to show God to the world. Use it to show God to your children. As we close, um, Drew McCullough, some of you guys know our family pastor, Drew. Um, my favorite meeting of every week is on Tuesday afternoons uh, a few of us in our church, we get together and open our Bibles for the passage of the week, and we just wrestle with it together. And um, he had this incredible illustration that he said, all of us, 
um, whether you're married, single, empty nester, we all, with our children, with the people in our circle, but especially with our kids, we all, essentially, metaphorically, we get down on our knees and we wrap our arms around our sons and our daughters and we say, look, look at that. Look how awesome that is. Look how precious that is. We do this with the way we talk, with our lives, with our money. What are we pointing them to? Is it baseball? Is it earthly success? All of us, when we gather around the people in our circle, but especially our children, and we say, look at that. Look how awesome that is. As a family, what are we pointing them to? Is it to an earthly thing that's here today and will be gone tomorrow? Or is it the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ? Use the good gifts God's given you to point your children, especially, but a watching world to the grace and the mercy and the goodness of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? He's the only thing that can satisfy. It's the best thing for our hearts. It's the best thing for our souls. And it's the only thing that's gonna last for all eternity. So as we pray, and we're gonna sing, um, we're gonna sing a song asking God to help us with this because boy, do we wander. And boy, do we put our hope in other things, lesser things, earthly things. And as we do this, I want you to pray. Um, Jump into the misery that I felt for the past week and think about, just look at your life over the last few weeks. Look at your schedule, you know, look at where you spent your money. What have you been a slave to? Success, building a reputation, sports, you name it. But as you pray, just wrestle with this reality. What have you... What's been Lord the last few weeks? It's painful. It's heart surgery. It's what the whole sermon is. But take a minute and wrestle with that reality. Why? For our sanctification. So that God will dislodge that thing. Thomas Chalmers wrote a whole essay. How do you dislodge this affection for stuff, for possessions? You dislodge an affection with the expulsive power of a greater affection. So whatever that thing is, whatever you're trying to get from that thing, if it's more security, if it's more hope, if it's more peace, find that in Christ and let him dislodge the affection for that thing. But join me in my misery and think about your last few weeks and what you've been serving with your life, what you've been treasuring here on this earth and allow God's grace and his peace and his joy to dislodge and uproot that thing and replace it with himself. Let me pray together. And then we'll respond. Lord, thank you for your word. God, I really have a feeling that we're gonna look back on this series and I don't know if fun will be the right word, but we know it'll be good because every week you continually get at the motivations of our hearts. And God, I'm grateful that your love for me is not based on my complete devotion to you, but on Christ. God, that for all the ways that I go wayward and I wander and I worship lesser things, your approval of me, your love for me is based on Jesus' complete devotion to you. And because of that, God, I want to know you more. I want to devote myself to you more. I want to get rid of these other things. Not so that you'll love me more. You've already proven how much you love me. But God, because of what you've done for me, God, help us to do the hard work, the heart surgery by your spirit of dislodging the affection for these other things. Help us now. We need you. In Jesus' name.